Hello. Howdy. How are you? Oh, sorry. I need to hold it down here. Uh, I'm doing well. I got a mic. Nice. We're not having to uh, like lean over the table <laughs> anymore. Yeah, we're like a foot and a half away. Now we're like seven feet yeah. away. We were smelling each other's breath last week. Mm. I brushed my teeth. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Since then, yeah. 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 I, I just take my showers, you know, once a week. It's it's fine. Yeah. yeah. This is not how we plan to start. <laughs> this is not at all. <laughs> Maybe we need to work on that part too. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to segue. Yeah. Uh, so well, at least I learned how to shower in the dorm at college. What kind of a college? A Baptist college. That's where you learned to shower. I mean, I mean, that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, we went to a Baptist college. We graduated Speaking. from there. We're alum nerds. Are we going to explain that every single time? I mean, we can. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so speaking of that, uh, Bible college, what is something you wish you would have learned while you were in at Bible college? Something I wish I would have learned? I feel like we had a class on ministry leadership and like the philosophy of like pastoral ministry itself and like what it should be, like how you should live it out, how you, what kind of mentality you should be in. And I feel like we talked about ministry burnout briefly, but not extensively. And I wish I would have learned more of like how, you know, better ways to cope and better ways to deal with ministry burnout and how to treat our wives in ministry because I feel like wives are overlooked like I grew up in a military family and my dad was deployed a lot and so him being deployed no one really emphasized the um, the spouses who are taking care of the kids while their spouses are in a whole different country you know serving you know their country and then you have the family so it's like shedding more light on the spouse who is at home you know like a pastor's wife or a deacon's wife or Fill the blank, wife. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I mean the. Um, I remember because that was one of the classes we took together was uh, pastoral ministry, and um, it was a fun class. Yeah, it was. It was really good. But yeah, the the section on uh, burnout it was it was pretty short. Uh, <laughs> that's a that's a big thing that uh, pastors struggle with. That's a big thing that can get you down. Um, so yeah, that would have been good to cover a lot more. Uh, you know, for me, the, the thing that I wish we would have covered was ecclesiology, study of the church. Uh, you know, we, we, we both had to take, uh, church history classes. We had to take stuff on how the church has been run, but not, uh, not really how the Bible says the churches should be run. Mm. And there's, there's a lot in there. Obviously the Bible talks a bit about the church so it's going to have yeah. statements on how to run the church how to function and it's not going to i mean it doesn't obviously boil it down to like this is how to do business meetings and stuff like that but how to set up the church what are the offices yeah. it it talks about that and so i think that's something we should have spoken a bit more about in college i mean that's solid because how many people like within church itself right i remember my pastor was always like the pinnacle of like any kind of theology any kind of like preaching about God I mean he's at the platform but I never 
knew a difference between like an elder or a deacon or a bishop and it's just it's very i don't know it, you know different church offices need specific like i say descriptions about them and how they should function in the church and i don't know i just feel yeah i agree with that Sorry, I was listening to you. I was just uh, pulling up a, a text. This is here in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, in that, you know, it, it talks about a few different positions that were, um, that God gave to the church. It talks about a few different offices. And the point of that, the point of all those different people, the point of the, the elders, the evangelists, and this time the apostles, the shepherds, the teachers, it was to equip the saints. You know, and being in ministry and, and at ministry school, you learn a lot about you know how to well how to minister to people yeah but biblically the job of the pastor is not to be the sole minister of the church no it is to shepherd the people so that they go and do the ministry right and they have the gift of teaching and preaching and but it's almost like you know you're you're responsible for just that i guess i don't know would you say that's fair or like to an extent yeah uh you know it at the end of the day, every pastor ought to be a member of their church. Yeah. So, like the, it's not a hierarchy. Like you're just like everybody else. You're just using your gifts that God has given you in, in that capacity. Yeah. So we're we're all responsible for uh, the work of ministry. We're all responsible for looking out for each other, for evangelizing. But the specific role within the church of the pastor is to equip the saints yeah. and. I mean, how how is a pastor going to do that if they don't know what the role of the biblical role of a deacon is, or what the biblical role of a church member is, or what church membership actually is? Um, those are things that you need to know if you're going to pastor a church. Yeah, I mean, and then the book that um, our professor was recommending was was it Well Intentioned Dragons? Oh yeah, yeah. How do, you, how do you deal with people in the church that are, you know, like they have the best intentions in the world? They want to help, they want to serve, but they don't know how to use their gifts, and you know, they don't get socially, you know, what is going on. They're not really self-aware of their actions, and they're really hindering. You know, it's like you don't want to tell them straight up, you know, with that aggression of, hey, you're not helping, you know, the function of the church. But it's like, how do you minister? And how do you love them? in the sense of like telling them the truth like, like I don't know just Well-Intentioned Dragons by Shelley and I know that's his last name I, yeah, I don't remember who that was by um, the the book that really helped me was The Deliberate Church by Mark Dever and I forget who the other person was uh, but they 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 kind of broke down uh, what the Bible teaches about the church and then how do we apply that and one of the biggest things that it helped me to understand is church membership because a lot of people will say well church membership isn't biblical and to an extent that's true it's not in the bible you will not find yeah. church membership spelled out but it is it is implied in the bible 
Oh yeah, like it's it's the same. What is it? It's a different form but the same function. Mm-hmm. It's just it's like the Trinity. It's yeah. there. It's just not called that. That's the name that we've given it. But you look at it in First uh, Corinthians when Paul is addressing the man who was sleeping with his. Was it mother, stepmother, mother-in-law? Mother-in-law. Mother-in-law. Uh, he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, and Paul you know, tells the church, like, hey, you need to get this man out of your congregation. And the fact and, that y'all are tolerating this, like, what are you doing? Like, get this man out. Yeah. But the the what's implied there is that they knew who was in the church and who wasn't. Yeah. They may not have had it written down, but they understood these people are in the church, these people are not. And they need to make sure that he is not in the ranks of the church because of his sin. But then you get to Second Corinthians and you see him being welcomed back in because uh, because he's repented. Yeah. But that implies church membership. That implies that he is a part of that church. He is a member of that church because they understood that he was among um, he was in their ranks, and then for a time he was not in their ranks. And it shows that commitment, devotion to, like. We call it church membership, but that's really—it's just showing that you're committed. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're saying you want to get involved in what is happening, and you want to be obedient to where Christ wants you to be. Yeah. And what? So, how would you define church membership? Well, it's not going and saying, "Hey, I belong to this church because my grandma is a part of this church, and therefore I'm going to pop in and out every other year." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so easy to say, oh, yeah, that's the church I'm familiar with, so therefore I associate and affiliate with that church. But church membership is you're finding specific avenues to plug in and join a church where you are able to grow. I say like like, like joining a church in the sense of you're figuring out where your spiritual gifts are going to be used and you're aligning with you know, a church with the same beliefs as you mm-hmm. and you're able to become a member in the sense of, you know, like, who was it? You know, like someone saying like, oh, what is a relationship? It's, you know, is a boat that you, you know, join together. And so a membership is you're becoming a part of the ship, you know, as the captain is steering. And I'm like, it sounds cliche, but I mean, it's really like you're joining, you know, yeah. something bigger than yourself that not only God is going to use, but also, you know, you're able to grow in that. Yeah. I guess. If, I don't know, like, a, a set statement, but... Yeah, so I... At the... And this is one of the things, one of the reasons why I wish that we would have learned this in, yeah. you know, in, in, in classes so that we could have a set, you know, defined... Or a set definition of this. And the one that I've learned from uh, my mentor is that at its root, church membership is the church affirming your statement of faith yeah so if if somebody is a member of the church that is the church saying we believe this person to be a christian that's the very root of it that's the very base of church membership now obviously there's more that goes into it there's you know like you were talking about the commitment to be a member of that church to be a part of that body yeah um but at its very core that is the the base element of that exactly and that's why again going back to first corinthians that's why they had to discipline that member and remove him from the church is because they could not say at that point, we believe this person to be a Christian. He, he then later on proved to be uh, repentant, but yeah. at that point he was not. 
Oh yeah, like he was trying to commit and affiliate with that and almost like put up that front, put up that face of like, yeah, this is how I'm serving, but then I'm sleeping with my own mother-in-law. Yeah. And people are finding out about it and just tolerating it and not calling it out for what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's hindering, it's, it was probably hindering the reputation of the church and you see that going on today as well. Like, Yeah. And so the church that I got saved at, right? So my parents got saved. I want to say they got baptized into a Baptist church. I want to say 2007. And so we, you know, we went overseas, you know, military child. So there, where there was a chaplain building, you know, like a, like a base chapel, but then you had different services that use that base chapel if that makes sense so there'd be like an eight o'clock protestant service a nine o'clock catholic service and then there would be like a not like a full gospel service at like 11 it was just different denominations that use that base chapel and so we as you know i guess the family were baptist but i mean me and my sister weren't saved and so you know where i'm going with this is the church that i got saved at i got saved 2017 but we joined 2015 so we became members as a family, mm-hmm. but I still wasn't saved. Yeah. So like, not that like, you know, I was almost fake, but it was almost like in a weird way, like a, not a baby dedication, but like a, a family dedication. Yeah. Of like we promised to join this church and commit ourselves to this church body because we find ourselves growing like this is you know we're thirsting for water and this is where we're finding a fountain you know we, we thirst for god but i had no concept of that like you know i was you know a christian i thought i was mm-hmm. had the right christian words the right you know christian ways like externally but like on the inside i was i was just literally lost i had no idea what i was doing and i played the part so well when i actually got saved 2017 people had no idea and so it's like, like how would you, how would you say in terms of church membership that way? Like, I mean, it, it went right, but it wasn't, I guess, orthodox. Like, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, so when it comes to families, um, I, I there are some churches that that do it like that, where it's you know the whole family joins. Um, I've been in churches like that. What I personally would do, and I've I've seen done before, is basically each member each member of the family being individually voted on. Um, so it's not, you know, bring up the Smiths and vote on all the Smiths, but instead, you know, if it's the couple, bring them both up and then, you know, vote on Mr. Smith and then Mrs. Smith. Um, what, and what would you mean by a vote? Well, it, a lot of churches, it's, you have to be voted into membership. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. There are a lot of churches where, um, most Baptist churches do this, where you, you know, go up in front of the church, whether some do, uh, you know, like membership classes beforehand or interviews with the pastor or some just do it that day. But yeah, you go up in front of the church and then say, you know, we want to be members. And then they say all in favor, say amen. And then everyone says amen. And then any opposed, typically no one says anything when they ask if anyone's opposed. (laughs) Um, No, I choose you. But but yeah, then they're voted in by the church to be members of the church. Okay. Um, going back to the the family situation, uh, so on the one hand, there is there is the fact that you 
we don't know each other's hearts. And so, you know, if somebody, if a whole family comes and, you know, there's no discernible, like, there's not really a reason to question their statement of faith. Um, Again, I, I, I didn't know you at the time, so I don't know if you had you were like throwing up gang signs and talking with the pastor or anything but um typically i mean what i would do is you know again vote on each individual member uh and talk with them individually to gauge where they're at spiritually and on top of that if anybody is not baptized then rather than rather than just voting them in by statement of faith baptizing them into the membership of the church okay ours was very so we were at that church from 2015 i want to say probably like because my parents were still going there 2021 and then they moved Mm. back to the midwest but it was one of those we were there and what they had was people who wanted to join the church they would go forward and then they would say you know, like afterwards, like, and that would be the altar call, essentially, of like, hey, you want to join the church? You know, like, you know, either come forward and profess Christ if you want to be saved or join the church or if you just need prayer, you know, this is a space, like a space you could just pray. So we went up as a family, like my mom was like, come on. And I was like, wait, why am I going up there? <laughs> you know, and so all four of us were staying there and they said, you know, this is, this is this wonderful family. They want to join the church and, um, if you rejoice in them joining, but please give a clap. And so we did the, my parents did the membership class with them too. It was almost like they were the ones, I say, shepherding us. Like, I guess like, hey, you kids go play on the playground and we, you know, we'll do the membership class, but we were 15 and 11. (laughs) So, I don't know. That's good fun. Good fun on the playground as teenagers. (laughs) So we just, I don't really know, like, what all went on? I just know that they are the ones that went to do it. I never went to it. My sister never went to it. So we were just kind of, we just assumed we joined and we got involved in the youth group. And that was a whole different dynamic, whole different story. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, churches, you know, so, because you're talking about church functioning, right? Deacons and, you know, these church member men, these men's ministries, women's ministries, and you got these pastors. They've studied, and they just dedicate their lives to the ministry. And what it says here, you know, how long does the average pastor stay in ministry? It says about four years on average. Four? Four years in America. Like modern day, 2022, the average ministry span of a pastor of just being involved in ministry is four years. Wow. Why do you think that number is so small? Well, I. So, I one question that I would ask is: Does that include youth ministers? True. Because one thing that I have seen is that there are a lot of people that come out of youth group, and uh, some of them are Christian, some of them are not, uh, but a lot of them just want to. They just loved youth group, and so they want to relive that because, you know, it's a bunch of games and it's just a bunch of fun, and they never really paid attention to the lessons, and so, you know, their whole thought process is, well, I just want to, you know, I want to be a youth pastor, want to do, you know, all those games, have the pizza parties, and 
So they go and you know get a degree in youth ministry and then serve for a few years, realize it's it's a lot harder than that. <laughs> it's yeah. it's not just pizza parties and games. It's it's tough. And you deal with families like you had to deal yeah. with just brokenness and all like all these uh, like ethical cases and mm-hmm. just it's a lot to it. Yeah, <laughs> it takes a toll on you and you it, don't it's really hard. Appreciate it that much. Yeah, and it it really is a calling. Yeah, and so I think there are a lot of people that get into it because. It just seems fun, or you know, even people in the pastorate who get into it for uh, out of spite, or because they just they like attention, and yeah. again realize this is a lot harder than it looks. This is a lot more intense than it looks. And the standards that I'm holding it to, oh, you know, people are not meeting what I thought they would. They're not giving me the attention that I thought you know I thought I was gonna get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So the four years is the average span of a pastor, just Protestant pastor, I guess, of just evangelical Protestant churches, like Baptist churches, I guess. So do you mean, do you mean like four years at one church or four years years total in ministry? ministry? Total ministry. Okay. So that's on average. Yeah. And so we have the cases of like, oh, so-and-so pastor has been at this church for 25 years. Like that's seen as a minority now. Mm Mm-hmm. So that, that four years is on average, but youth ministry-wise, a youth pastor on average is 14 months. Gosh. For, like, I feel like there was about four years, and then the I thought a pastor would be like 10 years, honestly. But it says the average is 14 months. Wow. Why do you think that number is so low? Well, I think that's just what I just talked about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta rethink my point for the uh, pastors. Because <laughs> it's. They're not getting appreciated enough. And a lot of them, like, the ones that genuinely care are just getting, you know, thrown out, you know, burned out of the system of wherever they're plugged into. And it's just, it's one of those. With the pastors, I mean, there was a thing I was reading where this pastor was at a church. He, like, joined a church, he was there, and it was seen as, like, him, like, he was taking money out of the church. And the church called him out on it, and he said, oh, you can't fire me. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, yes, we can vote you out. He goes, no, you can't. And it essentially was, like, in this weird power structure, you know, he thought of himself, he just got really big-headed and very egotistical, and he was just like, I'm not leaving. It took him two years, and he finally left. I don't know if there was money just back into the church or what but he ended up going that was an assembly of god church i think and then made it to a full gospel church that he just ministry that he started and i'm like is this dude's low-key a cult leader <laughs> yeah that that's just, not good just that power structure i'm like that's literally that cult mentality of like you can't i'm untouchable yeah you can't move me from my position just for a moment, just something I want to touch on that you brought up in passing. Uh, those full gospel churches. One of the things that they teach is that, like the, if you don't, if you don't have the gifts of, or the they yeah, have the gifts of the spirit, like speaking in tongues, that you're not actually a Christian. So that's part of like the full gospel. So if anyone listening to us knows anything about them, what are their thoughts on? 
the fact that the Bible literally says, all don't speak in tongues, do they? <laughs> I've always just wondered that. Yeah. So, crazy story that I'm still trying to reconcile to this day. This happened three years ago. So I went to this full gospel church. And it was very... We knew a guy, he was the drummer. He invited us to that church. Like we, I was still looking for churches in the area. So we went with... Um, you know, now my wife, like she was my girlfriend at the time, we went with her family. And what ended up happening, it was a full gospel church. And we got there. And we were probably there for like 10 minutes, and this guy is on this altar. He's in this suit, and he's just wailing. He's crying. We're like, what did that man do? Like, did he like commit mass murder? Did he like run over a puppy? Why is he like crying like that? And then he gets up, and he like, you know, kind of like, you know, his suit was all wrinkly, so he, like, straightened his suit out, and he just goes, whoo, and starts, you know, clapping his hands together. He's like, all right, we're going to start praising and singing to the Lord. We sang three songs, and that was, like, 20 minutes of the, like, three songs. And they just kept repeating the choruses, getting everybody all hyped up. Uh, you see, that's similar to, like, a hipster church, yeah. but with them it's repeating the bridges. We call them, yeah, exactly. And you got to get choked up at the same point every <laughs> single service. <laughs> And then you have the brief little intermission, the, before seeing this chorus again, I just want you to just know God loves you. You get the little lip quiver. <laughs> God just, God just wants to do something amazing in your life. Just reach out your arms. Don't cool. smack the person next to you, but reach out your arms. You know, it just... <laughs> I just started... You're, just, you're trying to create a moment when you got this pad in the background. <laughs> Sorry to distract, but I, so I used to go to like, very big hipster church and uh, I remember one day this girl sat in front of me they were these two girls they were like the most hipster girls that I've ever seen and you know like when the pastor's preaching if it's if it's a little rowdy in a Baptist church that means that someone is saying like amen these girls were going That's the most charismatic you can go in a Baptist church <laughs> these girls these girls are going yeah yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dang. Sorry. Okay. Your full gospel church yeah, story. Yeah. So, yeah. So you got the wailing. Go into the songs, and then you go into a time of prayer. You know, everybody's prayer means are met. And there was a guy who was sick apparently, but he was the main guy that laid hands on people, and like was speaking and you know prophesying over people so he was sick so what the church was doing was they said we should get together and we should all hold hands and lay hands on each other and that will channel this essential healing from wherever he was bedridden that it would send this kind of a healing spirit on him and that he would be healed and so they're all praying everybody was praying their own prayers and I was like okay I mean this this is new you know just kind of you know granted I had been saved for two years at that point. So I'm like going to Bible college and I'm like, what is going on? Why am I at this church in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> so we, we got that. So then, you know, the worship pastor, we call him Dr. Phil, bald guy, mustache. Yeah. So he's doing his thing and he goes, is there, is there an Isaac in this audience? And I'm like, mm. Someone slipped my name under the table and read it. I was like, that's the only explanation. I was like, maybe it is a move of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I don't know. 
And so he goes, is there an Isaac here? And I raised my hand. He goes, son, could you come forward? I feel like God is calling you towards the ministry. And I said, well, that's why I'm at Bible college. And he was like, let's just pray over you and pray God's anointing and hand over you. Had like five guys surround me. I wish they had burgers, but (laughs) (laughs) so they all laid hands on me. One guy was praying. He's like, Lord God, you did a wonderful thing in David's life. Dude next to me, he's like, you did a wonderful thing in Jonah's life. And dude in front of me, he's like, you did a wonderful thing in Daniel's life. And they're all praying their individual prayers over me. So it's like multiple voices in unison, or I I don't know. So I'm just standing there. I'm like, I can't leave. So I just kind of stand there. I was like, it's not me being being skeptical. It was just new. It was just foreign to me. And I was trying to keep an open mind about it. But we were talking, I say all this of just in terms of the full gospel church and you mentioned speaking in tongues, right? So this girl next to me, older lady, probably like early 70s, if not late 60s, and she goes into her speaking in tongues. I'd never heard speaking in tongues in person before. And everybody was silent. She did her thing. The weirdest phenomenon, I don't, I still can't explain to this day. I heard her syllables of her walla la la walla walla, you know. And then I heard audible English from her voice at the same time. Like it sounded like, say you and I were talking at the same time over each other. It sounded like it was two voices out of this one girl. I heard audible English. I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And it's something of like the evil that I felt. And granted, I was going through like a little depression. I was going through just a lot of like, I don't know, mental stuff like the week before. And I, I heard from her like, it was something like the the evil will pass, right? Keep in mind, I'm a Southern Baptist guy. I'm not charismatic. I'm not, you know, love my charismatic people. I'm, I'm not Pentecostal, you know. And I hear a literal voice from this girl, and I'm like, what is this? So I wrote it down on a piece of paper, everybody's silent, and then, and to kind of cut the story short, essentially, the man preached for the next two and a half hours. We were there for like three and a half hours. <laughs> um, and everybody was amen and he's like, the ark was made of gopher wood, you know, and they're like, amen, that's right. Amen in like every seven words that he said. And I'm hmm. like, yeah. why are we amen in the fact that Jesus rode on a mule, you know, that poor mule? Like, like yes, like the mule symbolized like humility, but we're amen in the mule more than Jesus. And I'm like, okay. Hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know. But, yeah. So I asked the pastor about it, and I, I told you know, my now wife about it, and I was like, that woman said English. She goes, no, she didn't. And so I brought it to him, and I showed him the piece of paper, and he goes, oh, no, son, you know, if you, if you hear someone speaking in tongues like that, it's their prayer language. It's not meant to be interpreted. It's not meant to, you know, it's, it's between her and God, and we, we're just observing, you know, what God is doing in her life. So I take it to these Southern Baptist professors, you know, like full doctorate degrees, pastors, Southern Baptist pastors, and they go, well, we are not cessationists, you know, in the sense of we don't believe that the gifts have entirely ceased, but we are cautious, and I feel like your experience is unique, and that guy is misinterpreting and misguiding you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say either you were supposed to... Uh, interpret yeah. if if it truly was a movement of the Holy Spirit right. or uh, the other option is that she was 
overcome with uh, emotions and I don't want to say going crazy, but uh, you know, acting out of an emotion from what she has experienced growing up in, yeah. you know, in her time at that church. Um, yeah, it was probably like and, a scheduled prayer in tongue, like a speaking in tongue. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then tack on to that, you know, you being brought into this new environment and uh, seeing this for the first time, and already being in a vulnerable state possibly just mentally playing tricks on like interpreting what you want into her speaking does that make sense yeah i will i logically i'm like is it just a placebo is it like my brain or like like psychologically did i just play something of what she could have said in my brain her words like kind of like an intrusive thought of like oh maybe this and was it actually the holy spirit speaking you know, like I feel like if it was from the Holy Spirit, I, I feel like I'd be more sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which I, I just I still can't explain. I'm like the fact that I heard two voices from this one girl. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It was just it was very it was interesting. I mean, that's the most I say charismatic experience I guess I've ever had or like like seen. Mm-hmm. And they call it the gift of interpretation. I didn't know that was a thing because I knew what a speed in tongues was, and then I heard it in person. I'm like, oh, that's what that is. Okay. Yeah. So. Which tying it back into uh, being alumni of Bible College. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we learned in maybe pastoral counseling. Something like that. Um, looking for horses before zebras. Yeah. Basically, if you hear, you know, if you hear a herd of horses, your mind is going to think, okay, let's look for the horses, not let's look for the zebras. Zebras are more more rare. Um, with that not, situation, not diagnosing someone, you know, like with a specific, you know, disorder, but rather keep it more generalized, I guess. Yeah. And um, doing that in the sense of ministry as well. And with that, you know, we, a lot of times we want to jump to like the spiritual explanation for something, which yeah. as you said, uh, Southern Baptists in general are usually not, and I, I fall into this category, not cessationists. Uh, we tend to believe that the, the gifts of the spirit are still active and present, but not normal. Right, and it that's can be used to further the gospel. Yeah, and that that is where I stand. And if it's if it's in line with First Corinthians twelve to fourteen, go right ahead. That's I mean that that's what it's there for. Um, but you know I okay, so I have like auditory hallucinations. So like I will hear stuff, and it sounds just like I'm hearing stuff. Like sometimes I'll hear like a loud bang, like someone's banging on my door and it's nothing. And, you know, for a while I wanted to say like, oh, well, I'm being spiritually attacked. But it also happened only when I was super tired. True. And no, I just, when I get really tired, I start to hear stuff. Huh. You know, and that, and so in... And it only happens in, like when you're tired. Yeah. Typically like when I'm about to fall asleep or when I'm playing games and I should be going to sleep. Yeah. So like in that same way, I don't think it's a mistake that that happened when you were in a, you know, dealing with depression. Yeah. Um, being in that vulnerable state. It was I, just the timing was weird. 
Like, yeah, which I definitely do think that the Lord can use that. The Lord will use that. But just hearing this account secondhand, I I would I would relate that more to mental state at the time. Yeah. I think, like, over time, like, that's what I've just come down to, you know, just as, like, an explanation. And and it was that fear of, like, like undermining what the Holy Spirit can do. And I don't know. It's just it's one of those experiences, like, if I ever went back and I had the same thing happen, I feel like the Holy Spirit would be more definitive in the fact of, like, this is me. Mm-hmm. Like, like the Holy Spirit speaking to me in the sense of, like, Isaac, like, I'm speaking to you instead of, you know, just kind of placebo, like, intrusive, oh, it's just my anxiety, or, oh, it's just a what-if scenario, you know, going on in my head, and then I accept the what-if as if it ha- actually happened, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, that was a full gospel church experience. Yeah. This has been a... Yeah. Yeah. What were you saying? I was going to say, just in terms of just... I don't know, in terms of charismatic churches. You know, that's the closest thing to like a tent revival I've ever been to. (laughs) Man, I... I went to a buddy of mine. uh, He was a... He was a... What did he... He led worship in a very small backwoods Pentecostal church. And... Those are the best I went to his his son's baby dedication, and let me tell you that place oh was freaky. Um, freaky. I mean, I was freak. I was like seventeen and <laughs> never been never been anywhere like this. I grew up in freaky. I grew up in Reformed Baptist churches, yeah. which is basically like Presbyterians that don't dunk babies or sprinkle babies. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, we it was very calm. Again, the most, like, out there that we would get on a Sunday morning is one of the elders saying from, you know, whatever pew he was on, Amen. And that was, like, if someone did that, oh, that was crazy. Maybe. If, it, if we're getting, like, real rowdy, then uh, during the worship... Like the term, real rowdy. <laughs> during worship, which was just, like, a dude in a polo... Uh, strumming a song and singing Chris Tomlin, yeah. uh, you might see like one hand go up. Mm. And that was like, Whoa, man, that's man. a... That's, 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 a, that's pretty liberal. That's, that's like pretty, Pentecost right there. Freedom there. So going from that to then uh, Backwoods Pentecostal Church, You're like, that was insane. I mean, there it was literally, it was like a hollowed out double wide trailer there were probably what? 20 people there what? and this man gets up like you said it was like it was like a two we were at like two hours by the time that we got to the actual baby dedication part of the service i mean there's just these big old ladies i mean like they could be like linebackers in the nfl mm. full-on sprinting around the church like giant circle what? pit but instead of beating people up they were just yelling um and then there there's just one point uh the, the biggest lady that was there i mean she had to have been like six foot maybe oh like my gosh maybe like 350 like Jeez. big big lady uh she 
breaks from the circle and just sprints up to the front and the pastor just puts a finger on her forehead and she falls back i mean completely what? stretched out falls back i she i swear she had to have got a concussion or something i mean what? she just straight back onto her head and then at some point i don't know what this was but the pastor told everyone to like line up and so we we lined up and started like walking up to the front and then like he had like the anointing oil on his hand and then was like poking us on the forehead and when he got to me like everyone was you know they got tapped on the forehead and then like you know fell down or like sat on or like kneeled and started praying and he tapped me on the forehead and i just kind of was like okay and then i walked back to my seat (laughs) gosh what did he think do you think I don't know. He's probably just like this hey, white this, this white boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that was my Pentecostal experience. Um, oh. <laughs> so, uh, what were the other the other topics we <laughs> had written down? It's certainly. I didn't think we were gonna get to anointing oil. Yeah, I didn't. Oh, I have an anointing oil story. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, I worked at a. Uh, uh, a Christian bookstore for a little while and we sold anointing oil and this one lady came in and you know I just I, I would help you know people decide on what Bibles to get help them figure out like the different translations the different uh, study Bibles what they were used for and so I, I got to know some of our regulars and uh, this one lady I, I told her that I had just gotten ordained I was super excited and so we, you know, we talked for a while. Things were great. She comes in a week later, and she comes up and she goes, "Hey, pastor, pastor." I say, "What's pastor, up?" Pastor. I say, "What's up?" And she goes, "Okay, so my friend's house. She just bought it. It's haunted by a demon." <laughs> I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and she goes, "She goes, what? Uh, you know, what? What do I need?" What do I need to, need to get? Oh, shoot. And I said, well, you know, the Bible talks about, um, you know, when exorcism, exorcisms do happen, when the apostles were doing exorcism, exorcisms. Sorry, I struggle with that word. Um, you know, it talks about them doing it by prayer and fasting. Yeah. And invoking the name of Christ. And so, you know, I told her what I would recommend doing is call up your pastor or your friend's pastor you know some of the deacons from the church whatever whoever is like a you know well-respected member of the church get a few people out there uh, go out to the church pray you know pray over each uh, go out to the house pray over each room of the house you know just walk through it pray over it um, continue to pray throughout the week you know, invoke the name of Christ. You're relying on your ability to exercise that demon. You're relying on literally God's strength to yeah. work in that place. So she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, <laughs> I got that. But what, <laughs> yeah, yeah. what do I need? And I said, but what do I need? I said, prayer. And she goes, but which which anointing oil? Because okay. we had anointing oil there. And I said, prayer. And then she goes. Do you think this one and holds up one with like myrrh in it? And I was like, I think that'll work. Yeah. I didn't see her again, so I don't know. I don't know what happened with that house, but yeah, that anointing oil. Let me tell you, it's like 
for a, a small bottle of it, well, you can get the tiny, tiny ones for like 10 bucks. And then the like medium size, which when I say medium, we're not talking like a medium thing of olive oil. We're talking like, like a, I don't know how, what to compare it One to. Like honey. Talking about like four or five ounces of anointing oil for like 25 bucks. And then for, for like a, yeah, it's ridiculously no. expensive. I want Holy so badly, I want so badly to go I'll get a bottle of anointing oil. It's, it's, it's anointing oil. It's oil, not water. No. That will make you poop yeah. so bad. <laughs> but no, what I want to do is I want to go get some anointing oil, cook a steak in it. Oh my gosh. That'd be the most holy steak you've ever had in your life. <laughs> you did bring up a good point, though. The the water, the holy water. Yeah. Uh, I worked at a funeral home for a little while, and you worked at a funeral. Home? <laughs> I worked at two, and I got in trouble one day because we had we had this bottle that one of the Catholic churches in town just left there, and you know if if they had a service, they would just use that. It was a bottle of holy water. And I found it one day, and so I took a picture of it, and I was friends with my boss's son, and so I sent it. I sent the picture of it to him with the caption, like, who wants to take shots? God. <laughs> which... Yeah, he didn't think it was as funny as I did. Which, it was probably around the same time, maybe not, I could be wrong. I'm just sitting there in that day room, I think, one time, where I was sitting in my room, and I hear Sam come in and say, guys, I scored. <laughs> we said, what, drugs? He said, no, I scored. I got some communion bread. Like, I don't know. He got some communion wafers. He got a whole package. So think, when you're in church and you have those little styrofoam wafer things, he had so many. At 100. He had like 100. Maybe not 100. I think maybe 50. With all the little communion grape juice, yeah, that we, we had communion for a while. That's one of those things where, in my old age, uh, I realized that was <laughs> immature and stupid, and I probably should not have done that. <laughs> yeah. It's not my proudest moment. <laughs> I didn't mean to expose you. I was That's just like, I was like, you know what? Well, I'm just going to take this communion bread. I, I've grown since then. Because I'm so used to doing matured. the church. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, my roles are colliding. A dorm life and well, church. The, the best part was, the whole reason I got it was because there was there was one new guy on campus. Because it was that was yeah, coming yeah, back yeah. from a Christmas break. And so there was right. one new guy on campus. And he was like... He was like right across the hall from me, and so I figured, you know, like I want to, I want to get to know him. I want to be his friend. What better way to do that than to just, like, you know, ask him if he wants to, you know, come over to my room, play Xbox or something. So I did, and uh, while we we're playing, I'm like, hey, you want a drink? And he says, sure. And then I hand him a cup of communion. <laughs> that was the whole point. That was the bit. That was the whole reason I bought that. That's amazing. But yeah, if you go to a Christian bookstore, you can probably find communion cups. Whoever's listening drops everything and starts driving to the nearest Lifeway. Lifeway still open. Uh, R.I.P. Lifeway. Um, but yeah. Um, so, Isaac, 
You brought up a point about this was before we started recording. Uh, cryptids. Yeah. Cryptids. Yeah. So the question I originally posed was like, why don't Christians talk more about Bigfoot? That was those the actual question. But even further, like in the sense of how should Christians tackle like the cryptids? You know, you got the Loch Ness monster, you got the Jersey Devil, you got Mothman, Yeti. You know what I've always. I don't know. This isn't related to like the Christian view of cryptids. Yeah. What I've always found weird, you listed like some you know American cryptids. Obviously, you included like Loch Ness monster, but you know like Bigfoot and Mothman, and yeah. they're all like super terrifying. And then like British cryptids are like little fairies, <laughs> just a little gnome, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got like some of these jungles. They got like. The pygmy Bigfoots, I guess. Yeah. Pygmies that just run around and people... Oh, my gosh. There is a documentary. One of my, probably my favorite documentary of all time. I don't even know why. It's just so fascinating to me. This guy, Timothy Darrow, went with this guide. He had, it was like a group of three of them. They went to Indonesia. They are looking for this lost owl species that he... He theorizes, he goes, it's alive. Scops Owl, that's what it was. The Scops Owl is alive. It's somewhere. We don't know where it's at. So they go in, you know, and so flash forward, authorities find Timothy Darrow alive, but his tour guide, who was of Indonesian descent, he was mutilated. Like his whole body was shredded. And like it looked like his like he was being eaten, and his buddy I think died. I can't remember if he died like fell from a tree or something. So essentially, the guy was tried. Timothy Darrow was tried, and he was deemed cannibal in the jungle. And it was news headlines. It was crazy. He gets locked up in that prison for life. Because he destroyed, well, he, he mutilated the body of someone else of their country. You know, this foreigner came in, so we have to punish this foreigner. He swears up and down it was these pygmy people that were chasing him, that were chasing all three of them. And he claims there was a camera that he got on, he filmed it on footage. So the guy who made the documentary, so say that that would happen. I want to say the 80s. Hmm. Guy, 2010s, creates the documentary. He goes, you know, he got this thick Australian accent. He's like, I'm going to go find them. You know, I'm, we're going to go find that lost camera. And long story short, his sister was like, you know, Timothy Darrell, he, he, you know, my, my brother Tim, he loved birds. You know, he loved this and this. He captured them on this camera. And the guy goes, wait. That low-key might be the camera. It was just in her attic in, like, Kansas somewhere. They find the camera. They find the footage of the pygmy people. They're, like, three foot, three and a half feet tall. They swing from trees. They're, like, super nimble. And he got a footage of this pygmy person with his long, like, hair and this, like, kind of, like, I don't know what to call it. Like, you ever seen, like, a shrunken head? Yeah. So, like, imagine, like, a really big shrunken head face. Like, you ever seen, like, Harry Potter? with like the shrunken head like kind of like he's like take it away Ernie. Mm-hmm. You know, like literally they all had those faces 
like on the footage you can see and this dude like one of the pygmies is taking this rock and he's just smashing the tour guide's like whole body and he's just eating the body and to me they're all, he's running for dear life and he swear like he had like sleep you know try to hide himself he couldn't sleep throughout the night so he's just running 72 hours or something like that on fumes and they went to go find the crime scene and he was arrested and the documentary guy was like hey let's go you know find him in prison because they documented him you know for the documentary he goes i know what i saw i can take you to the places but i'm still in prison so he drew a map they deemed him innocent after the video he died in prison man and so it's it's said that these pygmy people are still there huh like there's a whole like and in the video, you saw like this, like panning of like fifteen of them, just with these spears, and they're just like, and these like these three foot people, and he's like, it's crazy. It was the cannibal in the jungle. That's what it's called. Cannibal in the jungle. And so, on huh. the topic of cryptids, though, <laughs> on the topic of cryptids, though, is like, you know, do you think Christians are afraid to talk about, say, like Bigfoot, Loch Ness monster, for like? Do you feel like it's something that needs to be talked about more, or is it just you know what these are products of the fallen nature of like myths and folklore? So it's all we can rule it out as all fake. Well, I don't think that we should rule it out as all fake. Um, so I think that a lot of people have, even if they claim young Earth creationism, have kind of in practicality don't believe in young earth creation True. so you know you talk about like there are these you know these places where they have i mean they're digging up thousands of footprints and you have oh, you have dinosaurs and human footprints all in the same rock layer well a lot of people like even a lot of christians who claim young earth creation don't want to accept that they want to say that you know oh well no that's you know christians or people and uh, dinosaurs didn't walk together and so when you're rejecting stuff like that you kind of also have to reject the possibility that some of these things are maybe still alive uh, you know the Loch Ness Monster I would cons I would consider that to be a I, I, like a prehistoric I don't know if I believe the Loch Ness Monster is still there but if it is then I think that it would be similar to a like a, a dinosaur, a fossil that we we might find, you know. It, I think that it would be from that family of uh, of animals. Like there's a sauropod that's said to be in like Indonesia or something, and it's called Makalupa membe. And so, for those who don't know what a sauropod is, it's essentially a long neck, like a long neck dinosaur. Yeah, there's there's stories of one of those in the Congo. Congo. It wasn't. Yeah. It was the Congo. That's what I'm thinking of. Which the crazy thing about that is the so the the natives of Congo, the natives of that region, when they were first like first made contact with, um, you know, with like the general public with people, they were telling them stories about this, and they had like, you know, drawings of this thing, and like they should have photographs and drawings of this thing, and. The, the people that were contacting them immediately recognized that as, oh, that's, you know, this dinosaur. And, I mean, they, they, they weren't doing 
archaeological or geological digs. They were just fishing and yeah. <laughs> hunting and gathering, and they they found these animals. Um, You've seen the ones where they claim that like pterodactyls are still like in Africa. I have not seen that like, claim. Like they, the natives claim that there are these large, like massive birds with like these like fifteen foot, like some odd meters of like wingspan, and they'll like they'll straight up just come and like attack them. Mm-hmm. And like, and like the skeptics are like, oh, it's like ostriches in like swampy, you know, African lands, you know, just trying to like come at them, or it's like big storks or some, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm like. Could the possibility of dinosaurs be alive today? I mean, you really got to, you really got to, I don't know, narrow that down, I think. Because, okay, so alligators are considered to be dinosaurs. Yeah. Alligators are from that same family. They're from that same. Giraffes, rhinos. Yeah. And so... I mean, there are a lot of animals that are alive today that we have fossils of. And I think part of the reason is because, you know, if you take a, a if you take an evolutionary worldview, well, fossils can only be made over, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Well, we have things that we know, like we can date back to not that long ago, like within, uh, within historic times, within the past few thousand years, that have been fossilized. In fact, some are... I, I don't know the exact dates, but it, it doesn't take as long as geologists like to claim. Yeah. And so... What am I getting at? <laughs> I lost my train of thought. I've been... I was thinking about this book. I was trying to figure out a way to bring it in, and now I don't remember what I was going to say, so I'm just going to bring this up. Uh, <laughs> um, so I've been reading this book that is about uh, giants, but the biblical giants. Like the Nephilim? Yes. So it, it identified Nephilim. like four or five different like tribes of giants in the Bible. So it's got like the sons of Anak, um, yeah. the Nephilim. There are a few others. The Zippumim. The Anak. Yeah, A-N-A-K. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, I just told her it was the Anak. They're like, ooh, what? <laughs> um, Philistines. Yeah, but the interesting thing though is, you know, all these all these countries have tales of giants, and we always just assume yeah. that's just myth. You know, even Christians, a lot of a lot of Christians just assume, well, you know, okay, the the Nephilim that was just like a, you know, uh, post flood or pre flood thing. You know, that's. We don't got to worry about that. And then you've got Goliath. And, well, he was just, you know, he was just an outlier. Like, we have really tall people today. So wouldn't that just be the same? But Goliath would be in the NBA. (laughs) (laughs) But the Bible does talk about giants after the flood. And a lot of the, like, all these these nations and people groups that have, uh, that have records of giants... That's all uh, post-flood. Yeah. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Are you familiar with Marco Polo's accounts? Not Marco Polo's, but... I'll mention in a second. um, When we first came to the Americas, almost every single explorer that came here talks about people that were, like, 
9 to 12 feet tall. Yeah. And then even Abraham Lincoln referred to giants. Abraham Lincoln in the 1800s referred to... He referred to giants in the Americas. But it wasn't like him telling this great tall tale about the you know the giants it was just him making he was talking about something else and he mentioned that the giants saw that the giants saw I, I forget what exactly he was addressing but he talks about how the giants saw whatever it was that he was talking about he was talking about something completely different mentioned them in passing there were you know, countless headlines that talk about these giant bones being found, and these giant bones were in um, museums and stuff. But then, when the rise of Darwinism came came about, and that became the accepted theory, well, giants don't really fit into that. If we are talking about humans evolving and you know changing over Should time, we, be much we so giants are basically a smack in the face to. Darwinian evolution with the rise of Darwin's theory came the downfall of of giants being accepted huh dang I mean I always wondered like cause you you see like accounts of people finding bones mm-hmm. like like Marco Polo like and he had some like portfolios not portfolios like he found some like we found we found journals of his today, like stuff he documented where there's these giants when he was in want to say Europe, and it was like in the like uh, I want to say 1200s. Let me look it up. So essentially, he was coming across these like like you said 12 to 15 foot tall like like colonies of these people, and they were like passive, like very like here. Let me Marco. Yeah, so it was a 1200s, yeah. So he he would come across these, like, colonies of just these massive giant people. And he would, like, record them. And, you know, he, he includes, like, these really passive, like, interactions with them. And he would go to, like, essentially what we'd call China today. He would go to like the way far, far east. And he was coming across these giants or these like, essentially like, like these villages. And in these caves, he records that they had these lizards tied to these like, essentially like the, they tamed these lizards with these massive sharp teeth and they could supposedly breathe fire. So you're living in a time where these fire breathing lizards, right? And he doesn't recall, like, he doesn't write down that they had wings, you know, so we can't really say dragon per se, but why would he, why would he record specifically that they had these large claws, large, just sharp teeth, they breathe fire, right? So they were taming something, and whether it was the giants taming them or not, but he just, you're living in a time period where there was giants and these lizards, and he wasn't a, say, like a religious person, so you can't write it off as, oh, that's just, you know, mythology, that, that's not literature. Like, that's recorded, documented by a philosopher. Like, like what was more, what was he, like a merchant? 
Like Marco Polo, do you know? I think he was the founder of a game you play in the pool. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know much about Marco Polo. He was, yeah, he was a merchant. Hmm. Um, Follow the money. Venice, Italy, on the Silk Road. He traveled along the Silk Road. So, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Like, there was a guy, I was looking at his theory, he says, like, say, like, his, his whole claim was a T-Rex skeleton, right? Mm-hmm. Was too abnormal for, like, you know, when you find these skeletons, you're like, oh, they're really constructed, like, they're fake in the sense of that's a baboon bone, that's a giraffe bone, that's all this. So you have these fake skeletons, what he claims, right? I, I wish I had the direct source, but he was essentially saying, like, scientists are able to identify all these bones except for a t-rex skull like they can't compare it to anything because it's so just very like you know abnormal very unique you know and so he argued like why would that big head be like small as of like a t-rex arms when it would probably be a wider wingspan and leave room for some kind of wings in the middle like the it would make sense for those little arms to like be more out here with just missing skeletal structure to where they could be wings of a dragon. And he argues T-Rexes are, you know, like essentially dragon skeletons. And we, and you know, because we, we see Triceratops, we, we see like these large sauropods, these um, Stegosaurus, and we assume there were so many, those are just the abnormal dinosaurs we found, like the, um, the minority. An average dinosaur, they say, was like the size of a sheep. <laughs> just just yeah. an average dinosaur you're walking with. Like, I'm pretty sure they probably used dinosaurs to build, say, like pyramids. They used giants to build pyramids. Like, oh, you know, these, these advanced civilized people. I'm like, there had to be some kind of external source or external, like, I say, helper or tool to build. Mm-hmm something so vast and so grand as like a pyramid and how do they survive a flood unless they're made after the flood I don't know like the the pyramids yeah like how do they withstand so I think the the main thing that needs to be like okay I go back and forth on where I date the pyramids whether they be before or after the flood yeah um the reason why I would say before is because, uh, well, okay, the, the defense <laughs> for why they would still be standing is because if I went out and totaled your car and then I brought it right. back and I was like, like it, it could still drive, but like one of the tires was just off and like it was all dented and the, the roof was completely off. And I was like, here's your car back. You'd be like, you destroyed my car. And I'd be like, no, it's still there. But but we all understand that's destroyed. Um, and then the Bible talks about the flood destroying everything. And then we look at the pyramids oh, and people say, well, they're still standing. Well, they have the entire like outer shell of them scraped off. They have, they're missing stuff. Like that's, that's destroyed. <laughs> Um, and then some people argue like the flood would be local mm-hmm. it was a local smaller flood but I'm like it was global like the word they used was global <laughs> yeah and it, if and it was so if it was a smaller like a 
just a local flood. That means that God doesn't keep his promises. True. Because we experience local floods all the time. Right. If God promised not to have a local flood, well, then he's gone back on that. Now, it is interesting, though, to you know think about the flood and uh, the pyramids. I, as I said, I go back and forth. I am more leaning towards uh, the pyramids being a post-flood thing. And so I've been watching this show called Ancient Apocalypse, which I've talked with you about this a little bit. Yeah. I started um, it. It's on Netflix if you want to. Fire. Absolutely watch it. Um, so he he's going around and he this guy is, he's making a case for an ancient uh, advanced civilization during the Ice Age, which he puts that the last Ice Age about 11,000 years ago, or no, 12,000 years ago, around 10,000 BC. Um, I would put that closer because I, I would hold again to a young earth creationist view. Um, so I, you know, I believe that it come the, uh, the ice age came after the flood, but regardless, he talks about how there was this, he calls it the younger driest climate catastrophe. And he talks about this younger Dryas where there was uh, flooding. He doesn't say the entire earth was flooded, but there was flooding all over the earth. Um, and, you know, there was lots of really just a, a huge climate cat- catastrophe. There was flooding. Uh, there was volcanoes erupting and earthquakes. It was just horrible time. And that is what he claims led into the Ice Age. Again, I hold to a flood after the flood leading into an Ice Age. But here's where it gets interesting. He shows that all these ancient civilizations, they had a story of an Ice Age. Or they had a story of a flood that then dated to around the time of the Ice Age. And during the Ice Age, they talk about a what they call this great civilizer that showed them how to uh, build monuments and how to have a society. So from a biblical perspective, we have the flood. flood. They all had those ancient civilizations have this theory or these stories about a flood uh, that we, that a lot of people just chalk up to imagination, mythology. If, If you have these hundreds of civilizations all saying it happened, safe to say it happened. Some kind of flood happened. Then you have Now, a lot of people think Noah when they hear the you know, great civilizer. Yeah. Nimrod. Nimrod. This great civilizer that shows them how to you know, be part of this advanced civilization. Well, Nimrod was the leader of Babel who instructed them to, lead, or to build the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel would have likely been some sort of step pyramid. So then... You have all these people groups splitting off from there into you know their, their separate language divisions after God confused their languages. You have all these people going across the world. And so they know from this great civilizer, Nimrod, they know to look to the stars to uh, help them figure out the seasons. And so they build their buildings based on the stars. And they know uh, from him how to build pyramids as temples to the gods and so they build pyramids as temples to the gods and you know they they build their civilization around this it's so weird like it's like 
almost like an intelligent design, I guess. Like, you remember how, like, the pyramids, like, you know, were, were like, some distance between them, like, almost like, how do they know to place it there? Mm -hmm. Like, you had that outer knowledge, I guess, of, yeah. you know, like, a supernatural knowledge of, like, they these civilizations, like the Aztecs, the Egyptians, or, like, what was it, the, the one in Asia, do you remember? I don't remember what they were called. Like, they all had the same structure. Mm-hmm. Is like, do you think it was almost like a fallen angel, you know, or like a... Now, that's where I was going to tie it into the giants. Yeah. So, the Nephilim were, you know, these, these hybrids between the fallen angels and humanity. I think it stands to reason that post-flood, when you talk about, like, Anak and uh, all the other the other uh, giant tribes that they were similar that they were you know fallen angels which is another word for demons and man I think it's safe to say that Nimrod could have been one of those so Nimrod yes or at least or at least been in contact with them because Nimrod the great civilizer would have taught them about if you know if this theory holds true then he would have been the one teaching them about the the star alignments and all that well where did he get that knowledge from oh. from the nephilim uh if you read the books of the books of enoch it talks about it talks about how the nephilim taught which this is not biblical this is uh what is pseudepigrapha is this pseudepigrapha is it a, i don't know well okay it may be apocrypha but it is pseudepigraphal in the sense pseudepigrapha meaning that it's falsely written so by a false name um i think there's debate about whether it's or not it, it is it is apocrypha. okay there is still debate though about whether or not enoch actually wrote it um but it talks about it's again not biblical but it is very well respected especially amongst the, the Jewish faith. Um, like they would consider it to be like historical, like you can appreciate yeah. it, it holds something of honor. Yeah. But is it necessary for divine? But it talks about these, the Nephilim uh, teaching the people how to, uh, how to interpret the stars, how to like be civilized, do all these things, and them basically guiding them to being an advanced civilization. So, again, not biblical, but still held in high esteem, still counted as you know one of these uh, historically accurate books for the time. So if that's the precedence in you know pre-flood days, it stands to reason that that would be uh, how it would be carried out in post-flood days. So that knowledge of the stars and the movement of them, I do believe, came from the, you know, these these hybrid people. Yeah. And there was a guy I had met. Where? What year was it? So it was essentially, like my my wife's mom at the time, she was dating a guy from New York. He believed, what was it essentially? 
that all of the creations of like, like pyramids and all of like these um, structures like worldwide were created either pre-Adam and Eve, like the fallen angels like had made a civilization before Adam and Eve were created, and it explains why they're so like, you know, well done, symmetry, like mathematics, like they're so intelligently designed. Either they were made Adam and Eve days, or they were made like pre-flood um, in the sense of man, like these, these fallen angels and Nephilim, and, or they were making idols for themselves. Hmm. And flood happens, wiped all the fallen angels, quote, quote, out, and all that's left is their structures. And humanity to just kind of like these ants to just explore the hills of like, ooh, what is this? Hmm. I don't buy it. I, you didn't really have any evidence. I was just like, that's yeah. a sick theory, though. Yeah, I like that. I don't agree with it, but I like I don't it. Agree with it. Yeah, but I was just like, I never thought about that before. Yeah. There was um, I was in a conversation a couple of years ago where they, it was it was our uh, my old roommate, his dad. We were we were talking about like in terms of like Methuselah being nine hundred years old and you know how did they live to be that age and we our average lifespan is what seventy. Mm-hmm. 80 something like that lucky. how is it that that is able to happen like like how can we reconcile that and so what he was saying was there was a video where he was explaining that the world was at a higher altitude like like pre-flood in the sense of like we are higher up so like if you're in an airplane you notice how your heart rate is slower you are just more up in the sky like a higher elevation the slower you're breathing the slower you're aging and so the fact that they were so high up, they were able to age and they didn't have fast food. They didn't have things and toxins that were like really killing them the way they're killing our bodies and sin nature is affecting us. So they were able to live out their years at this higher altitude. Then the flood happens and then the earth is at a higher, uh, as a, is at a lower elevation. Hmm. And, and that we're closer to, you know, this lower level, we're closer to the sun, we're closer to the equator, so we're, you know, global warming, and I'm like, okay, that, then that's where you lose me on this. <laughs> but I thought it was an interesting, too, like, yeah. theory of, like, there's there would be more science, I would, I would have to look into the science to back that up. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting. The explanation I've always heard is... Um, so it talks about the the waters below and the waters above. So it has the sea and then the the canopy of water around the earth. And oh, yeah. that canopy of water, what that would have done is uh, essentially acted as a filter. And so it would it would have changed the atmosphere. Oh, it would have changed <laughs> It would have changed, you know, the air quality would have changed uh, the, the climate would have kept it a lot more controlled so you don't have like you know these harsh winters and then harsh summers it would be pretty moderate year round um, so you have that you're, you're saying that would be global yeah because the bible talks about the canopy of water above that's right um, and to those of you that say you know well oh how can 
How can that be? How could there be a canopy of water? God created everything. I think that <laughs> holding up a little bit of water is yeah. kind of the least of his worries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Why would that be exempt from what God can do? Yeah. But uh, so with that, um, with the changed climate, the, the controlled climate, it would have been our lifespan would have been longer. I mean, you put people in those conditions to heal them now, like burn victims, a lot of times they put them in these uh, like atmospheric chambers where they essentially, I don't think I don't think the hospitals are meaning to do this, but essentially what they're doing is recreating those atmospheric conditions and that oh. is actually being used to heal people. Huh. Like to restore like the cells to, or is yeah. it to like to restore their skin. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And I mean, that's just, again, I don't think the doctors are realizing that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. And we just lost that water canopy, so we're more exposed to the sun and mm-hmm. aging significantly faster. <laughs> yeah. And with that, uh, and that's actually how it would have led into the Ice Age, because when that water canopy would be taken you know, down to the earth, it would have been gone. All those gases could leave. Oh. All the heat would leave, which then lowers the temperature, leading into an ice age. Dang. Bars. Bars. So last week we talked about bringing these down to like half hour or forty-five minutes. Yeah. We're at eighty-one minutes. Are we really? <laughs> yeah. Dang. We should probably sound off. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed it. Yeah, stay sweet. So Make good choices. We got our pilot episode. We got our second episode. How can we be praying for you, Sam? Um, I was about to click stop recording. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's start with you and then come back okay. to me. <laughs> So, yeah, there's a lot of seasons um, in my life. I got a baby on the way. Um, we're praying for, I guess, healing and that I can equip and prepare myself, get the proper tools to become a father and to you know be in that sphere. It's, it's coming soon. Um, I think just praying for this new job that I just was able to get the, you know, the green light for, so just, I'm excited for that, and so just, there's new seasons, and, uh, so it's, it's like, this was the year of, like, excitement and change, and next year will just be a big, massive year of just, even, even more change, and just, so, just be praying for, well, God to do great things, and for me to be faithful, and mature, yeah. <laughs> I just... And I gotta start dropping weight. Mm. Praying that I can be disciplined and drop actually, bars, not the bar in the gym. Lift that bad boy up and well, lose that weight. Well, no, because what you gotta do, you gotta lift it up and then you gotta drop it down so that way people can hear mm. how much you're lifting. Mm. Because it'll be like a big thud and then they'll be like, oh, he's lifting a lot of weight. He's super cool. Ah. That's how it works. Well, next time I go, I will have to do that. <laughs> well, this was a Lunders. Hope yeah. you all enjoyed it. Stay sweet. Stay sweet.